Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Welcome to NASCAR America, everybody. Carol Amano, joined by Parker Kligerman and Steve Letard, is going to be with us shortly. But we begin with the latest in the case involving Tony Stewart and the family of Kevin Ward Jr. Today in Utica, New York, Stewart and the Ward family appeared before a U.S. District Court judge to confirm that they had settled the family's wrongful death lawsuit. Ward died during a sprint car race back in August of 2014. After crashing, he exited his race car on the track before being struck and killed by Stewart's car. NBCSports.com's Dustin Long joins us now. Dustin, what else can you tell us about what happened today? Yes, as you said, the uh, the settlement uh, was reached, and, and uh, both sides uh, went to court and said that they, they agree with the terms of it. Now, no financial terms of the settlement were revealed. Uh, the documents regarding that were sealed. One thing that was revealed is that both sides can discuss the facts of the case, but nothing beyond that. Uh, after the, the, the brief hearing, it's about 15, 20 minutes uh, in Utica, New York, uh, neither side spoke to reporters that were there. So uh, for now, this, uh, it, it moves in, and, it, and, and for them, it's, 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 they move on and they're finished. This is something that's been going on for such a long time, Dustin. So is this now officially over? Both sides obviously trying to avoid the trial that would have begun on May 7th. Where do things stand right now with the finality of all this? Yeah, it's, uh, it, basically, it, it's all but over. The, the judge has to, uh, he plans to dismiss the wrongful death lawsuit once some procedural details are completed with the settlement agreement, and that should be done shortly. Uh, there was a trial that was scheduled for May 7th, but that'll, that'll go away. Uh, one of the things, that, the things that came out in court today, according to media reports, is that Kevin Ward Jr.'s mother, Pamela, told the judge that she had wanted the case to go to trial. But the cost of doing so would have been would have gone beyond the means of the family, and that was why they reached a settlement. And one note on that settlement is that uh, Tony Stewart will have to pay the settlement cost himself. In a 2016 ruling, the court stated that Axis Insurance Company was not obligated to provide coverage because the 2014 Empire Super Sprints race where Stewart struck Kevin Ward Jr. was not among the 105 events specifically listed by Tony Stewart Racing for coverage. All right, Dustin, thank you. Let's turn our attention now, if we can, to this weekend's racing on the short track in Bristol. Our NASCAR America poll question today, who is the current best short track driver in NASCAR? Kyle Busch, Denny Hamlin, Kevin Harvick, Jimmy Johnson, or somebody else? Is it Parker Kligerman? I don't know. You can choose if you want to. Go to NBCSports.com slash NASCAR vote. The choice is yours, and we'll give you the final results a little later on in the show. With that, we're going to welcome Parker and Steve into the conversation now. So we know that Bristol's night race is a very big date on the NASCAR schedule, but the spring race has also produced some really, really good results. So before we get into discussion here, let's go through our top five Bristol moments from the spring. And we'll start at number five. And Parker, we remember Denny Hamlin and Joey Logano's feud from the 2013 season. Bristol was where it all started. Yeah, they weren't quite racing for the lead, but it got very aggressive. And Denny Hamlin getting the back of Joey Logano. Joey ends up spinning out there. And then after the race, this is where they find themselves confronting each other. Joey wanting to just talk to Denny a little bit, let him know, I did not appreciate that bump too much. 
things get a little aggressive there as the crew members get involved and so on and so forth. <laughs> it escalated quickly. Steve, number four, 1993, just days after Alan Kowicki's tragic death. Rusty Wallace winning here. Yeah, we always see crazy action on the racetrack, but this might be one of the most memorable moments of Bristol when Rusty Wallace does the Polish victory lap, the backwards lap, remembering the late Alan Kowicki on the week where he lost his life. It was a uh, sentimental moment for sure. I know you love this finish, Parker, it, back in 1990. This is absolutely awesome. Back when Bristol was still actually asphalt, not yet concrete. You see this photo finish between Davey Allison and Mark Martin. Eight inches of classic finish, and then a kiss in victory lane. How can you not love that? <laughs> I love it. I love everything about it. Number two, 1997, Steve. Jeff Gordon delivering a bump and run on the final lap here to get past Rusty Balls for the win. Well, I was the tire guy on this 24 car this day, and I was a big fan of this move. But I'll let everybody know the bump's not the hard part. It's the run. And if you're going to do the bump, you have to do the run and get away from that competitor. Worked pretty well that day. Since you're intimately familiar with number two and number one, we'll stay with you here in 2006. Not so good this time for Gordon. Now, I was the crew chief of this car, and Jeff Gordon showed his displeasure for Matt Kenseth. Somehow they fought, and I ended up in the trailer with the two drivers, and Jeff's fine actually came to me, because when you're the crew chief, you're supposedly <laughs> responsible for everything. So, uh, yeah, that's okay. Later that year, we beat him at Chicago. So it all worked out in the end. You're the one that had to cut the check at the end of the day. Uh, we had Dale Jr., Dale Jarrett on the NASCAR America Debrief podcast with Nate Ryan, which is something that we're doing now after Wednesdays with Dale last night. And they actually, in relation to Bristol, shared some of the best advice that they had been given by Dale Sr. Take a listen to this. He never one time gave me a, a single lesson about driving, except once. <laughs> one time he gave me, and this was, I mean, he gave me, if he gave me an an exact lesson, if he was going to do a book of lessons, this one would be in there, and and it was such a great lesson, and he did such a great job giving it to me. I'm really surprised now when I think about it that he didn't give me any more, but because he taught me really well at this particular situation, I believe um, he had gotten out of his cup car, and uh, I was out on the racetrack, and he got up on top of uh, a hauler and got on the radio, and he said, I'm going to tell you where to lift. You do it. And he said, I'll tell you where to get back in the gas, and you do it. And it was really elementary, but he, I, I so we, I come off, I was like, all right, I'm ready. Going around the racetrack. I mean, this is race weekend. Everybody's practicing, racetrack full of people. And we get, I get to the flag stand, he said, lift. <laughs> and I was like, man, I can go another. <laughs> that seems a little early, yeah, man. I can go another yeah. couple hundred feet <laughs> for sure, easy. And he's like, lift. And then as the car settled down in the corner and really just, just loaded up, he's like, start backing the gas now. And so he basically took the whole whole lap and wound it back counterclockwise where I mashed, where I lifted and where I got in the gas. He, made, he basically was teaching me to get into the corner easier and get off the corner harder. And so I was overdriving the car. And it really made the lap more about momentum and more about timing and, and rhythm. And so this made driving Bristol very easy. And it was a little bit quicker. People ask me all the time, you know, what'd your dad teach you? What'd your dad, he never did. We never sat down and talked about how to draft or this is, you know, you see me doing this, this is why I do it. He never would do that. 
Uh, but that one time, I guess he saw me uh, struggling pretty bad and <laughs> said, I'm going to tell him how to do this, and hopefully he'll learn. Got you that uh, win. I, I thought, I'm glad to hear that because I, I had a complex. I thought he just wouldn't talk to me about driving. Every time I ever <laughs> tried to pick his brain. No advice from the intimidating he would not. He would not talk about driving a race car whatsoever. Uh-uh. Didn't want to talk about setups. Didn't care what you had. He knew he was better than you, so he didn't care how you might be going about it. Um, if you beat him, it was because you had something he didn't. And so <laughs> <laughs> that was his philosophy, and but I, I I thought for sure he was talking to you about things. No. But I knew there were yeah you, know, you could talk to other drivers that you know you go try to have a conversation about driving a, a certain track. You weren't gonna have it. He wasn't. He'd totally change it. We'd be talking t-shirts and hats and diecast right. cars or something. You know, hunt, him going hunting what or he something. Thought was important. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah he wasn't gonna talk about that. <laughs> More of that discussion available, of course, on Apple Podcasts in the NASCAR America feed. That uh, makes sense. Uh, oh, Dale Senior's advice when it comes to getting around Bristol—not the part about being the intimidator and keeping <laughs> everything close to the vest—that doesn't surprise me but at all. Junior's kind of assessment of, of the feedback. No, that's great advice, and that's the same advice I think every single young driver has had when they went to Bristol or a short track for the first time in a big, heavy stock car. I mean, if I had a dollar for every young driver that got taught that lesson and then to- told that same lesson later in their career, I'd probably own a Cup team by now. But I think <laughs> the crazy part is is that this racetrack is so unique because it is such a high bank fast racetrack but it's so tiny and therefore how you make speed around it can sometimes be deceiving you think a lot of times you want to drive off in the corner and just gather up the car in the center but that's not how you make speed you make speed by getting in the rhythm by allowing the car to do some of the turning and finding where the speed is at depending on where the lane is at that sort of thing and one of the best descriptions of bristol i've ever heard is fighter jets in a fishbowl and that's what it is. It's that chaotic. And, Steve, I think that's the thing about this place is it's just the only way to describe it a lot of times is chaos. Well, it is chaos, Parker. What makes Bristol Bristol is there are two very separate things. There's going fast and then there's racing fast. And making lap time is one thing, but at a racetrack that's only a half mile long with 40 of your closest friends in 3,500-pound stock cars, rarely do you have the track to yourself. So that's what makes Bristol so difficult is as odd as this may sound, It's a lot like restrictor plate racing. You cannot practice leading up to the race. The race is very different. When all the cars get out there, you can't run the whole race. So what Dale Jr. described is how you need to run Bristol to be fast. But yet at the same time, you have to run Bristol over your head. You have to block. You have to be aggressive. It is basically the most passive, aggressive racetrack you will ever see in your life. And the the superstars that have figured it out, who have all the trophies, They've managed when to be aggressive and when to not race harder than they need to. And um, listen, I don't have a trophy there as a crew chief. If I knew when it was time to go, I would have perhaps been more successful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Steve, you actually made me think of something, and that is, you know, when you think about Bristol, one of the craziest parts about it is how much it changes over the course of a weekend. You see where in practice there's no rubber on the racetrack, and you get out there, and and one guy might be blistering fast, and then qualifying comes around, and they slow down a little bit, and then they get to the race, and that car that was the fastest in practice now finds himself running 15th or 20th, and the guy who was languishing in 20th, running around, maybe sticking to a plan of where he wanted the car to go as the rubber laid down the track. That's the guy that's going up there to fight for the win after 100 laps or 200 laps in green flag condition. So, Steve, I I just wonder, how many times have you been there and felt like in practice, man, we are out to lunch, we are never going to be good, and then you get in the race and it's like, bam, we're there. Well, about every time I've been there, there's been the shift, sometimes to the good, sometimes to the bad. But Really, what you said, change is the whole key. And when I look at the guys that are successful there, they're the ones that 
don't lean on their crew for a lot. As a crew chief, this is one of the tracks that I felt the most helpless at just because the track changes so much just over the course of one fuel run that I'm not sure that, you know, a spring rubber or a chassis adjustment or this magical turn of wedge is going to fix any car on the racetrack. It's easy to identify the stars and those who have had success already at Bristol. But, Steve, I want to talk now about some outliers. Who do you identify as an under-the-radar driver that you think could have some success at a short track like Bristol this weekend? Well, both names I have on the top of my head, I'm not sure they're under the radar anymore at Bristol because they've shown some success. And Ricky Stenhouse Jr. is the first driver that comes to mind. It has something to do, I think, with his dirt background. I think he understands how you can't stick to a plan. You have to move off the bottom, up to the cushion, come back to the bottom, do whatever you have to do to find what works for your car in the moment. And I think uh, his team, Roush Fenway Racing, self-admittedly would tell you that they haven't quite figured out the mile-and-a-half tracks for probably the last two or three years. So Ricky, I think, looks at Bristol as his chance. He can go out there and make the biggest difference. He's not leaning on horsepower. He's not leaning on downforce. A race car driver can do it. He knows how to adapt, and I think that's why he has the same traits go with the rookie driver that really hasn't had any success there yet as far as a win, but dominated last year, and, and that's Eric Jones. He led over half the race last year. It took his teammate Kyle Busch to beat him, um, which I think that's a feather in your cap when Kyle Busch is the guy that's outrunning you. But Eric Jones, you see here in that 77 car, even though the 20's in the picture, he was in this 77 dominating the race this year he'll be back in that 20 car i expect to see eric jones running towards the front leading laps and i think contending for the win no doubt about that one i definitely think that that's two great picks but the driver i've got my eye on i think is starting to creep into a lot of people's uh, vision a little bit and that is the 10 car of eric Almarola. i know he has been highly publicized how he went from maybe a subpar midfield ride to the best ride of his career and has shown some great finishes throughout this season but one track i heard him mention early in the season was bristol he was really excited to get to bristol and i think when you look at his past there what he's done performance wise where he's had some great finishes a couple years ago he finished third in that 43 car i just feel like it's a racetrack for him that he has circled thinking this is a place i know that i'm gonna have the best car i've ever had and i know how to get around there he's very confident so i look forward to him having a good run we're going to talk about nascar fantasy too coming up in a little bit so i want to know if these picks that you guys are identifying now are good enough to make it into your lineups but we should mention also that the very popular sticky stuff oh yes this stuff's great one vht really just call it whatever you want it was laid down yesterday at bristol motor speedway on the low groove in the corners to help create some exciting racing this weekend so for fans watching nascar america right now i know that that is a sight that most people would like to see all right coming up next parker's going to jump into the simulator race around the world's fastest half mile with some online friends and maybe even dale senior's advice is going to help him with some quick lap times we'll be right back Here's the deal. Manchester City can clinch the Premier League title this weekend with a win and a Manchester United loss. City are on the road versus red-hot Tottenham. That is Saturday, 2.45 Eastern, right here on NBCSN. Meantime, this day in NASCAR history brings us back to 1992. Davey Allison took the checkered flag in the first Union 400, and Allison edged Rusty Wallace by 15 one-hundredths of a second for the victory. The 28 team took home just $51,000 for the win. My, my, how things have changed. Aside from the purses, something else has changed since the 90s, the emergence of racing simulators. 
think video games for me were the way I got started in, in racing and really how I learned how to drive a race car. You're not just racing against a, a computer or something like that. You're you're in there, you know, racing guys that are racing real cars, which gives you the confidence that you can do it. I know a lot of NASCAR drivers do that. They get on and play with fans. Um, but I think it's a great uh, great thing they're doing just to give fans a little bit more access and, and firsthand see what uh, we go through. I'd say during the season, uh, two times a week, I'm out there on a simulator at some point logging a lot of hours. It's fun and it's also cool to see kind of the young talent that's out there in the world that, you're, that you, know, you may never meet that's uh, got a special talent at uh, racing online. We throw Parker to the Wolves all the time in the simulator. So without exception, fire it up at Bristol Force, Parker. Thanks, Carolyn. Yeah, I've got some of my best friends here from all over the world joining us here on iRacing to help us do these sim segments. And we're coming to a green flag here at Bristol. I'm on the bottom, mid-pack. We're about to get the green. And this is one of the toughest places in the world to get the power down. Because once you get going, it really is easy to spin the tires. You see a couple cars get squirrely. Remember, I'm in the 18 NBC Sports car right now. You get up to fourth gear on the bottom, and you might find a lot of drivers going to be on the bottom at the start of the race because of that PJ1 that's been applied. And the craziest thing is, though, sometimes you might find yourself in the center, on the outside, being shoved up on a restart, and then you've just got to make that work. And Steve, the craziest thing about this place is it's just chaos. I actually get a little nervous for these sim segments because this is very hard to do. Talk and drive around Bristol. Yeah, well, the nervousness is because you're not sure what all those other people that are doing driving those race cars, if they're going to make a mistake. And as a crew chief, I have nerves because I'm not sure when I'm supposed to talk to you. You're only on each straightaway for a little over three seconds. So when I need to know how your car is driving, I gotta be very short, concise, and on one straightaway, I just need to know driver, loose, tight, how are you? Exactly, and it is tough. It's tough for me to even tell you. A lot of times you might just get sound bites from the driver, just a quick loose on entry or loose off sort of situation. But you know what's another cool thing that we have on this sim is telemetry, and we heard Dale Jr. talking about Dale Sr giving him that advice about how to get around this racetrack and that he needed the lift earlier. So if you look on your screen down on the right, you'll see a little bit of green dots and then red dots. Red means I'm on the brake, green means I'm on the gas. And right now I'm full throttle, but I'm lifting early. And I'm going down in the corner, just a little break, laying it roll, and then hard in the throttle again. That's how you run the bottom. You want to lift early, little break, and let that car roll through the bottom. But if you move up top, it gets a little bit different. You actually end up driving the car in a lot harder, a little bit more brake, and you end up getting the throttle a lot harder coming off the corners. You can see in that telemetry, and that's why the top works. You can get your momentum working. And Steve, I got a question for you as a crew chief. How do you adjust for that? Do you let your driver just move around, or do you want him to kind of tell you what he needs on each part of the track? Well, I think I need to know what you need on each part of the track, Parker, and also what you need on lap 10, on lap 50, on lap 100. These long green flag runs at Bristol can really change the way the car is driving. I also think it's my responsibility to remind you to try the top or try the bottom. As silly as that may sound, you know, it, it, as a driver, you get so busy, right? Racing traffic, you may not know that the leader's running the top and making time or someone back behind you is running the bottom. And you have to remind your driver to continue to search for that grip. Yeah, you know what, Steve? We just saw a big wreck behind me because it's not even easy to do a sim segment on TV at Bristol, Carolyn. That's what's so tough about this place. It's never easy, even if you're doing it in a simulation. Parker, thanks. Great job. Uh, coming up next, find out why Kyle Busch did not believe in himself as a cup driver early in his NASCAR career. Revealing sit-down up next in the latest installment of A Driver's Drive. Stay with us for that.
NASCAR America is brought to you by Mobile One Annual Protection. Proven protection for 20,000 miles. For the third time in four races, Kyle Busch finished second, and it's becoming a frustrating habit. Even though you didn't win, does it give you confidence moving into next week? Next week's next week. Today's done, so no, it doesn't give you anything. Just uh, not good enough. We're right there. We're knocking on the door. We're trying. Kyle Busch is put in the floorboard, working his way down the back straightaway for the final time. Kyle Busch will pick up his first victory of 2018 at Texas Motor Speedway. Great job, guys. Awesome, awesome job. Did it, man. Never give up. That's why we do it. You know, we just haven't been able to break through, but today we did, and, and now we can focus forward on being able to make sure that we continue this. Sweet relief for Kyle Busch at Texas after a trying few months that featured a handful of near misses. And whether you love him or you hate him, most people can agree that winning is what matters most to him. His passion for the sport was instilled in his youth, as Marty Snyder found out in this week's edition of A Driver's Drive. Did you dream of racing as a kid? No question. When I was a kid, I definitely wanted to be a race car driver. You know, it was one thing that I always kind of strived to be, especially growing up watching the races on TV. I remember kind of just picking it up more and more as Jeff Gordon kind of came into the scene. And the rookie from Indiana, it's Gordon across in first. And uh, I would have been about eight, nine years old, kind of figuring out that uh, that was what I wanted to be. Bring it home, champ. We did it, guys. Yeah, you guys are awesome. I don't know if I quite understand life yet. There's something to be said about this year. Who's the most influential person in your racing career? I mean, there's no question that I feel like the most important and most influential uh, in my career was my dad, just because he was the one that kind of started it all and, and raised me into being who I am and obviously being the race car driver that I am. Kyle Busch, get out the broom. You just swept at Bristol again. When did racing really become a reality for you? I would say, um, you know, when I first kind of figured out that racing was going to happen, you know, being able to get out there on the racetrack in Legends cars and Modifieds and late models and things like that. Um, but finally being able to get a phone call and uh, go drive some truck series races and then sign that deal to go drive at Hendrick Motorsports. Kyle Busch is the youngest winner in the history of the NASCAR Nextel Cup Series. Once you kind of get that first win, and then especially when you get that second win, then it's kind of like, okay, I've made it. I got something here. I, I feel like I can do this. What is it about racing that you truly can say you love the most? There's no question the one thing that you love the most is winning. <laughs> Kyle Busch will pick up his first victory of 2018. To know that you were the best of the best of that day and you were able to beat all the rest of the guys that are the greatest of the world. There's only 40 of us that are out there each and every week. Get it, man. Never give up. That's why we do it. Yeah! Great job, guys! There's no greater satisfaction than going to Victory Lane. You know, Steve, because he is such a fiery veteran, it's easier to see Kyle Busch as a villain than a hero for so many people. But when you see that and when you listen to him talk about his story in racing, it helps you understand why he is who he is and where the passion comes from. Yeah, Carolyn, I was fortunate enough to work uh, next to Kyle Busch. He was one of the drivers at Hendrick Motorsports when I was employed there early in my career. And 
Um, you know, there's a lot of things that people can judge about Kyle Busch, how he communicates uh, his passion and fire over the radio that perhaps isn't the most well-directed. But never in his entire career have I ever heard that he didn't care about winning, that he, didn't, he wasn't trying to win, that he didn't have the fire to win. And as a crew chief, he is the type of driver I would be happy to crew chief for. Um, there are a lot of other issues you would have to manage with someone as fired up as Kyle Busch, but never would you have to manage his raw ability, his talent, his car control, and his desire. And those are things that even with a trophy case as full as his, I don't think they've diminished one bit. I don't think they've diminished with a championship. They haven't diminished when he wins the biggest races. He comes back the next race, and it doesn't matter if it's a truck race, Xfinity, or Cup. His desire to win is always top-notch, and that's what I know about Kyle Busch. It's what I appreciate about him. I think that's what makes him so important to the sport is because in a world of social media and uh, news and distractions and storylines, the simple fact is when he puts his helmet on, when he shows up at the racetrack, it's to be the fastest in every practice, to sit on every pole, and to win every race. And there's something so pure about that that I can get behind and I enjoy watching. Steve, it's well said. And, you know, one thing that struck me when I drove for Kyle back in 2013, the Xfinity Series, was that he has an incredible racing intelligence. And what I mean by that is that not only is he a great race car driver, but it's the way he goes about being a race car driver and what he looks for and the things he remembers and can recall from years prior and to tell his crew chief, this is exactly what's happening in the car. It happened this many years ago at this lap of this race, and I need you to do that. And you'd think he has a vast notebook, but it's all in his head. It's just sitting there waiting to be expelled and to find the right place, which is always trying to get to victory lane. And I think that's what always struck me about him is this, that he has this incredible way of knowing exactly what he needs all the time. You mentioned the trophy case, Steve. You cannot deny his growing list of wins, accomplishments, and that includes at Bristol. Yeah, when I look at what Kyle Busch has accomplished in his career, even with the championship, I think his two sweeps at Bristol perhaps at the top of the list. We talked earlier about the chaos of Bristol. We'll think to find a way to manage that in three different races on the same weekend. Not just manage the chaos to be competitive, but manage the chaos to win. And when he does it, he does it in dominating fashions. None of those wins were a last lap pass or lead the last five or 10 laps or a pit call. He's leading over 100 laps in every one of those races. I expect him to go back to back. He's my favorite to win this weekend I just think his raw talent and ability shine when chaos is at its highest, and there's no more, more chaotic than Bristol. Steve, you know what I've always thought makes Kyle Busch great at Bristol? And from the times of run against him in the truck series, or he's lapped me in the XV series, which was annoying at the time, but the thing that's always gotten me is that he finds a way to be able to run all the lanes at Bristol. What I mean by that is he can run the bottom because they've put a PJ1 substance down, but he can also find himself at some points of the race running the top and being as fast as anyone. And I find often at Bristol, there's many drivers who get locked into a lane. They find that they're really good on the bottom. They make their car work in the bottom and they kind of find they, they're comfortable there or they make themselves really good on the top. Like myself, I've always found I can go really fast after 20 laps on the top line. But Kyle Busch finds a way to be good on the bottom early in a run he finds a way to make the middle work at times and then he'll be fast at the top lane by the end of the run and I always think how does he do that it only, it's annoying at times when you're racing against him to think how did he find those things how does he know to go there but it's just what makes him so good at the racetrack and I think it's why he's been able to do these sweeps that he's done so because of the things that you've noted 
and because of the fact that he swept all three series at Bristol twice, you would think that that would make a pretty compelling case for why he may be the best current short track racer in the sport. But weigh in at NBCSports.com slash NASCAR vote if you feel differently. Is it Bush? Is it Hamlin? Harvick? Johnson? Is it somebody else? If you watched yesterday, you do know that that somebody else is not Rick Allen. He has never won <laughs> at Bristol. Go ahead and vote. Final results coming up later on. But I'm so glad that Steve said that he may be picking Kyle Busch this weekend because that is exactly what I was thinking from my fantasy team. And after the break, we're going to show you where the NBC broadcasters rank in our fantasy league. Spoiler alert, the trash talker Rick Allen is first. Ugh. Welcome back, everybody. As the Stanley Cup playoffs continue tonight, the hockey community continues to honor the Humboldt Broncos, a Canadian junior hockey team. Last Friday, the team's bus was involved in an accident with another vehicle while traveling to a game, and 15 of the 29 people on board lost their lives. Two NASCAR drivers will pay tribute this weekend to the Broncos, Xfinity Series driver and former hockey player Michael Annette, plus Canadian Monster Energy Series driver DJ Kennington, Will carry the Broncos logo on their cars. Nice move there from both drivers. Meanwhile, tonight is the second night of the Stanley Cup playoffs here on NBCSN. It's Toronto versus Boston, followed by Colorado and Nashville as the Predators look to start another run to the Cup final. Over on USA, Columbus facing Washington and San Jose taking on Anaheim. Our coverage begins right here after us with NHL Live, so stick with us after we wrap up. Meantime, Vegas experienced their first playoff game last night. It was quite a scene. In fact, our own Jeremy Roenick had the honor of cranking the siren in an elaborate pregame ceremony before Vegas shut out L.A. This year, the city is also going to host their first playoff race. So Las Vegas Motor Speedway, you are on notice. We are expecting a little bit of style from you guys. And seeing Jr. reminded us of our other Jr. Junior, that is, of course. And this is our throwback Thursday. Junior did the same for the Hurricanes back in October of 2016, ringing the sirens with some flair at that. So Bristol, by the way, is the second race of our 10-week NASCAR American Fantasy League. But you can still join our league and compete. You can compete against Parker and Steve, Dale Jr., myself, the rest of the NASCAR and NBC crew. You can register at NASCAR.com slash NBC Sports Fantasy. So here is how the broadcasters are looking after week one. I am towards the end of the list. Rick Allen, who is a braggart and said that he was going to win the whole thing, is at the front. And you'll notice that Parker and Steve LaTarte are tucked in there nicely. I could go on like a dissertation about why I am closer to the bottom. <laughs> I made a couple of mistakes. I'm a rookie at this. But I'll I, spare I everybody and just say that I am back. I can't find Steve on there. He's just somewhere in the <laughs> mid-pack. I think, Steve, where are He's you on not. this list? I, I just literally can't see you at all from where I am. I I'm close enough, Parker, that the next nine weeks should be concerning for you. Oh, yes. Seriously, Parker, why are you talking so much trash right now? We just started. Dave Burns is about to, like, run I'm the table. I'm feeling very confident, Carolyn. Oh, I, just did, I just am. That's the reason. All right, tell us about uh, who you guys are picking this weekend, and I'm going to write it all down, and then I'm going to steal it all. Go. <laughs> Perfect. All right, so, yes, as we said, we're heading to week two of the NASCAR America Fantasy League, and this week I have a selection of picks I'm very confident with and very confident with because, you know what, last week went so well, and I I've picked them for the same uh, reasons. Basically, my gut. I'm going with Kyle Busch to start. Surprise, surprise. We just waxed poetic about how good he is at Bristol. Beside him, I've got Kevin Harvick. We know the role he is on. You just cannot count these two out. And then beside them, I've got Ryan Blaney in the 12 car. He's been surprisingly great at Bristol and really good since they started putting down that PJ1 surface. Then next to him, I've got the veteran, Kurt 
Bush. Now, I was a little bit tepid with this one. I didn't know what to do it, but I just did it because I think he's one of the best at Bristol there is. And then I've got a reigning champion, Martin Truex Jr. in the 78, who I might replace with Kyle Larson if we get after practice and qualifying. I don't think he's quite up to snuff. And then in my garage, I got the driver who surprised us all in the fall last year, and that is Eric Jones with that tremendous run coming so close to winning. I think he'll be a great garage pick to maybe fill in if any of these other guys are not up to snuff. Who you got, Steve? Well, Parker, I'm feeling better about my team because it doesn't look a whole lot like yours. So that's a tip of the cap to me. And my team, I'm feeling pretty good about it. And it starts with who I consider a great short track racer, the 11 of Denny Hamlin. His numbers at Bristol speak for themselves. He always qualifies well. I expect him to run up front, be patient, stay out of trouble. Look next to Clint Boyer. I think he's going to take that momentum from Martinsville, the last short track race where he was victorious. I think he also knows how to run on the high banks. He'll be good. And then we talked about it earlier in the show, the 20 of Eric Jones. So dominant last year, only to get beat by his teammate Kyle Busch. I expect Eric Jones to contend for the win, so I expect him to be good. My sleeper pick, the 17 of Ricky Stenhouse Jr. While his name doesn't jump to mind when it comes to non-restricted plate tracks, I think he could show up at Bristol, score me some points, much like the 22 of Joey Logano. As long as I can keep Joey Logano and Denny Hamlin away from each other, I think they'll both score points. And then my garage pick? Kyle Busch, I expect him to be fast. We've talked about how he has swept the weekends, but it's feast or famine with Kyle Busch. He's going to lead. He's going to run up front. But as you see here, back in 2017, he couldn't get that fast car to the finish. It was some tire issues. I'm not sure they've resolved that. So I have him in my garage. If he looks like he can win, I'll just pop him in my lineup before the end of the second stage. You know what, Parker? You know what Steve's doing? He's talking the talk, and then he's walking the walk. Because he doesn't have Eric Jones in his garage. He's got Eric Jones out there. He's got Stenhouse out there. He's taking risks and trying to go. That he is. But, you know, I don't agree with those risks right now. I don't think those are really going to work out for you, Steve. But, (laughs) hey, let's head into the bonus area. Well, I've got the 78 of Martin Truex going for the pole, and then I've got Kyle Busch winning stage one, and then from stage two on, I've got Ryan Blaney. I just think he's going to be great. He's going to surprise a lot of people. He's so great at running on the bottom, as I said, since they put this PJ1 surface down. He's been one of the best there. He's, I've watched him very closely and seen him do some spectacular things around the bottom here at Bristol, and I've watched that 12 car get better and better each week. He had a great run at Martinsville. I'm feeling very confident for Ryan Blaney. Steve, I just want to know, all right, so that's who I've got. Who do you have in the bonus rounds? Well, I wasn't sure my lineup was going to be enough to beat you, but after seeing your bonus picks, I feel better (laughs) once again. I'm sticking with Denny Hamlin. I think Denny Hamlin, his numbers qualifying at Bristol speak for themselves. He's my pole sitter. And then I think track position will carry over, so he's also my stage one winner. But I think by the time we get to halfway, Kyle Busch is going to be out there leading the way. I have him winning stage two and stage three, and I have Toyota being the winning manufacturer. So that's it. I'm I'm expecting Joe Gibbs Racing to really show up this weekend. And basically what I've learned from this, Steve, is that you and I have a very high confidence that whoever wins stage two is going to go on to win this race. That's all maybe you can take away from this. And what I've learned from this conversation is I need to call Rick Allen because he's beating both (laughs) of you guys after talking a ton of trash. If you do need some help, like me, setting your fantasy team this weekend, um, go to Roto World, by the way. You get driver updates there, race previews, everything RotoWorld.com slash NASCAR. Parker, I know that you're using this as a secret weapon because I see you on it all the time. Exactly. And one of the things they helped me with this week was not choosing Brad Keselowski. Although I've seen him do some great things at Bristol and he is a great short track racer, he's very much feast or famine and as of late has not been very much in the feast side of things. So they they did a great write-up on him telling me not to pick him and therefore he's not in my fantasy lineup. 
Oh, gosh, I have so much to think about. All right, still to come, NASCAR dropped the hammer on the number nine team yesterday for the second time this season. Hear what Junior had to say about the role that social media has played in the way that NASCAR is handling certain violations. That's next. NASCAR America is brought to you by Mobile One Annual Protection. Proven protection for 20,000 miles. Welcome back, everybody. Yesterday, Chase Elliott lost 20 points, and his regular crew chief, Alan Gustafson, was suspended for the next two races after NASCAR penalized the nine team for a rear window violation stemming from last Sunday's race at Texas. Hendrick Motorsports will not appeal the penalty. Kenny Francis is going to be Elliott's interim crew chief at both Bristol and Richmond moving forward. The infraction for the nine team, which was visible on the race broadcast and also speculated about on social media afterwards, is the second time this season that NASCAR has levied a penalty following extensive online chatter about the way the cars have looked through photos and screen grabs and that sort of thing. So here's Junior's reaction to that. As the teams are seeing all these photos, you got to believe that NASCAR is seeing them just as well and has that same volume of photos to go through before Monday ever comes. Right. So when the nine car got the R&D center, they knew right away. They probably already knew where to go look. And we see it, you know, we're seeing it on social media later. And it's similar to... With that said, it's similar to the pit road incident where NASCAR said that they can't catch everything. There's so many penalties happening on pit road at one one given you know caution period, they can't catch them all. Same thing with these cars going around the racetrack. They might find a few, but there's a lot of a lot of things that might fall through the cracks that I think that pit folks on social media may be picking up uh, throughout the week. It's just really interesting to me. Um, I don't. There's not really a bookend to this conversation, but there, it's so interesting to me how this, how the public and social media is sort of playing part of this tune. They don't police the sport. I don't feel like that. You know, social media polices the sport, but they certainly are influencing how it's policed. Steve, this is a difficult one for me to unpack because similar to fist bump gate that we witnessed after this last weekend, we're living in a new time in sports now where everything is seen and social media and these screen grabs and stuff is just an added layer of where the sport finds itself now in terms of dealing with these infractions. What, where do you stand on this? Well, I really think that the social media, the online chatter is just noise above the penalty that would have been handed out any, anyway. Um, does the severity of the penalty change? Because of the notoriety of the, of the infraction, perhaps. Um, I'd love to think it doesn't, but I'm not sure. I'm quite that uh, much of a believer. I do think that when something catches fire online, it forces people to make a reaction. And I think NASCAR just has to make sure that they're clear and concise with their penalties if they're put into the corner. But I agree with what Dale said. I mean, look, the fans need to understand that it's more than just the, the great high-def cameras that the TV broadcasters have. These teams are getting real-time photos, HD, zoomed-in photos of their own car and all their competitors' cars. They can look at the ride heights. They can look at the tire deflection. They can look at the body movement. They can look at the position of the car on the racetrack, how it rides over the bumps. The amount of information that's taken off a photo is remarkable. They can be digitized. They can be measured. There's a lot of things that can happen with photos, and I am confident from firsthand information that NASCAR has these photos because my time as a crew chief I spent some time in the NASCAR hauler looking at photos of my car being explained what was and wasn't acceptable back in 2012, 13, and 14. So I don't believe that photos of cars on the racetrack is anything new. I think the new side of it 
is the amount of publicity it's getting on social media. But I truly believe, much like they said in that podcast, that NASCAR had an idea what they were going to look for before that car ever got back to the R&D center. So this example aside, do you believe that outside forces such as social media have an influence in what NASCAR's decision process looks like? I don't think it decides who they're going to penalize, but it perhaps could decide what size the penalty is. Um, If it becomes something that blows up because it seems relatively obvious, the penalty could perhaps increase. But I think NASCAR has been pretty consistent with this size penalty. Um, And they're very sensitive when it comes to aerodynamics. What the fans need to understand is that downforce is removed from the race cars, which has been the trend for the last couple of years. Then one, two, three, four, five counts are more valuable than they were two or three years ago. So the crew chiefs are going to try to find them, and NASCAR must enforce penalties in the strictest manner because five or ten counts, which were not a huge advantage three years ago, could be the difference maker today. They've gone through the challenge of the new scanning system that I believe has made the cars closer than ever pre-race. Now, this is the only way to enforce the cars during the race, and photography is their best friend. And you know what's interesting, Steve, is that there's a whole portion of this that I think gets left out of the conversation often, and that is the fact that you have the other teams are getting these same photos you talked about, and every team has photos of the other teams that they're competing against. And if we remember back to last year when the 24 was penalized at, at Chicagoland, one of the things in the rumors amongst that time was that the pictures that got that car in trouble were very much sent around from maybe an anonymous source within another team. And so these teams were watching this week after week. They were picking up on it. They were seeing it in the photos, and they were getting fed up that it wasn't getting caught. And therefore, they were the ones that brought it to the media's attention and maybe the NASCAR's attention. So I think, you know, there's a whole other side to this that I, as much as I love NASCAR Reddit and I love NASCAR on Twitter and everyone not, that gets involved in the conversation, I don't want to burst bubble and saying that they don't have any uh, reason, they're not maybe affecting things, but in a lot of ways, I don't think they are. I think there's, you know, far more people within the sport that are making these things happen and come to light, like NASCAR getting their own photos, as Steve was just talking about, and other teams seeing these things and thinking, hey, we need to get them caught for that because they shouldn't be doing that sort of thing. Well, yeah, Parker, we talk about chat rooms and social media. The biggest chat room that NASCAR has to be concerned about is the garage area, because if (laughs) other teams see this and it is not enforced for whatever reason, if there's not a penalty for whatever reason. If I'm a crew chief in 2018 and I have a picture of a car with the roof blown down that raced on Sunday and they're not in trouble, then my roof blows down the next Sunday. That is as simple as it gets. So NASCAR is then pushed into the corner. They have to use the technology to enforce these penalties because if not, if Kevin Harvick would have got off the hook, I agree With what happened to the four car, I understand their defense. I understand all the noise that happened. But if there was no penalty for the four car, then there would have been 40 roofs blown down when we got to uh, the races later into the summer. So you have to stop things before they get out of control. And, Steve, it very much is monkey see, monkey do. But one of the things I've thought about a lot with this sort of idea that we're taking these photos of the cars actually in motion is that for many years we've talked about how these cars are like transformers. And what I mean by that is that Brad Keselowski had a great quote about it one time he was taking the media through and he was saying that, you know, when a car goes through, it's getting built. And then when it gets done with the race, it's in completely different shape and form because the way these cars are built is to actually bend and move and find ways to get the bodies to shift as they go around the racetrack. Because forever, what we had was that you did that as the car was on the track. And then as if you could get it back in line, by the time you had to go through tech, then everything was all right. But now what we have is a situation where it's even harder because, as Steve, you kind of alluded to, which is that they're now 
going to what the car is doing on the racetrack in the middle of the race. And so, Steve, as a crew chief, I'm just thinking, like, how do you even plan for this? How do you start to build your cars and and affect the build sheets when you know that the car is now going to be watched mid-race, mid-lap? Well, Parker, I will say that if that was Daytona or Talladega where you need the roof high, they wouldn't have blown down. The teams know the direction of an advantage. They try to take as much as that's allowed. That's the line that these crew chiefs have to walk. But I'll also give credit to NASCAR. This isn't out of the blue. I take part in a lot of their monthly calls. I'm listening in. And they've been explaining to the teams that they will start enforcing how their cars look during the race. So I don't think that there's anyone on, in, on pit road that can say, I didn't know I'd get in trouble for that. And I think that's the number one goal is everyone knew that this would be an issue. Just, oh, by the way, Chase Elliott now sitting in 18th place after a pair of really significant penalties. He would have been in 13th and inside the playoff line. If not, meantime, still time left to vote in our NASCAR America poll question for today's show. Who's the current best short track driver in NASCAR? Answers when we come back. Tonight, five more playoff series get underway and an original six rivalry is renewed as Patrick Marlowe and the Toronto Maple Leafs visit Boston to square off with Rick Nash and the Bruins. It's night two of the playoffs and it all starts with NHL Live next. Liam, thank you. Meantime, points leader Joseph Newgarden seeking his second straight win while James Hinchcliffe wants to go back-to-back at America's longest-running street race. It is the Verizon IndyCar Series Grand Prix of Long Beach. That's Sunday, 4.30 p.m. Eastern on NBCSN. And speaking of James Hinchcliffe, he's already busy in Long Beach. Yesterday at the Aquarium of the Pacific, he held IndyCar's first-ever underwater press conference. He was surrounded by sharks and plenty of other creatures, eels, and whatnot. And his scuba suit had a microphone and a listening device so he could hear and answer questions. That's what we're doing with Kyle Petty next. (laughs) We're going to put Kyle Petty in a tank uh, from here on out. All right, let's play off the poll question. It is final. Steve, Kyle Busch, your winner. Very even results. Well, I think Kyle Busch is the right result for Bristol week. If it had been Martinsville week, maybe Jimmy Johnson. Richmond week, maybe Denny Hamlin. But I think Kyle Busch is the right pick for this week. I have to agree with you those that point, but I have to think I have faith in our fan base because Kyle Busch and Jimmy Johnson are so close, I'd say they're even in my eyes. All right. Well, that's all for the show today. Thanks so much for watching. We're back at 6 Eastern on Monday. NHL Live getting you ready for night two of the Stanley Cup playoffs. That starts right now. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939.